Welcome to Five Books for Catholics, where an expert selects and explains five outstanding books on some aspect of Catholic life, doctrine or culture. The social doctrine of the Church developed in the 19th century when the Gospel encountered modern industrial society with its new structures for the production of consumer goods, its new concept of society, the state and authority, and its new forms of labour and ownership. So says the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It goes on to describe how Catholic social doctrine comprises a body of doctrine, which is articulated which is articulated as the Church interprets events in the course of history with the assistance of the Holy Spirit and the light of the whole of what has been revealed by Jesus Christ. It proposes principles for reflection, provides criteria for judgment and gives guidelines for action. Nevertheless, deciphering and reconciling the ever-growing corpus of papal documents and pronouncements in modern society can be challenging. In this interview, Professor Russell Hittinger discusses some recommended readings that can help us understand Catholic social teaching. Dr. Russell Hittinger is currently Executive Director of the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. He is Emeritus Professor of Religion at the University of Tulsa and has taught or been a fellow at numerous other institutes of higher education. Since 2001, he is a member of the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas Aquinas, to which he was elected a full member, or ordinarius, in 2004, and appointed the Concilium, or Governing Board, from 2006 to 2018. On September 8, 2009, Pope Benedict XVI appointed Professor Hittinger as an ordinarius in the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences, in which he finished his tenure term in 2019. His books and articles have appeared through the University of Notre Dame Press, Oxford University Press, Columbia University Press, Fordham University Press, the Review of Metaphysics, the Journal of Law and Religion, the Review of Politics, and several law journals, both American and European. So I, I've opened with the Catechism's description of Catholic social teaching. It may lack some scholarly nuance, how would you define or describe Catholic social doctrine? Well, I usually just use the word thought. Okay. Because it's it, it's uh, probably 90% of it is not strictly doctrine, right? But it is certainly the study of the, uh, human social order, uh, beginning with what Leo XIII called the three necessary societies. So maybe we can start there. Whenever you see uh, not only prelates, but even Catholic scholars referring to the, the three necessary societies, you're, you're really going in through the front door of Catholic uh, social doctrine, because these are the things that don't change that much. So, um, and that would be marriage hyphen family. We have to put the hyphen in there because those are two different societies brought into one because obviously children are not married to their parents. So it's marriage hyphen family. 
then there is political order, and there's ecclesial order. And they're called necessary societies because every one of them begins with need. It, it, people are needy in a way that those membership in those three societies is not just an arbitrary choice. So with regard to a marriage family, the man and woman need to perform an act together. Procreation. They can't do it by themselves, at least not socially. Uh, and they also need each other to govern and raise a family. Uh, political order, social order, is based in a need as well. And, uh, and the need is this. Once we get beyond the extended family, what Aristotle would call a village, <laughs> uh, in which we're related to almost everyone we know, maybe second cousins, maybe a few third cousins. Well, then problems of justice begin arising. So let's say your sister is being mistreated by her husband, who's a distant cousin of yours. Who, who's going to do justice? And it's liable to look like a mafia at that point. So we need, we need a social order that has a kind of legality, a deep legality to it, to handle problems that arise once we're starting to live together in a more complex society. And we need, we need polity for the sake of justice. By the way, villages are very dangerous places. Hillary Clinton was wrong on this. It doesn't take just a village. Village is an order in which all kinds of mischief goes on. And we need the stability of political authority and law. And the church is based in the most profound need of all, which is the need of salvation, forgiveness of sins. But each of these social organizations uh, is a theater of excellence. They begin in need, but if everything goes right, all kinds of uh, virtues can emerge. Uh, the virtues of the governance of parents. I mean, it's the greatest lesson in in their lives is to be parents of children, <laughs> and and they become excellent at it. And so too in polity. It's not just preventing murders and theft and fraud. All kinds of important things emerge. Public libraries, uh, monumental buildings, all, all kinds of different uh, kinds of association begin to flourish in polity. And in church, of course, uh, uh, membership in the church is more than just the forgiveness of sins. All kinds of excellences emerge. That's the picture. It's rather Aristotelian and Thomist. Uh, that's Leo XIII's picture. That's Pius XI's picture. That's John Paul II's picture. That's ground zero for Catholic social doctrine. Now, there are other societies, of course. They're, they're typically called arbitrary societies. 
which means you enter them just by choice. Maybe a, couple, a, a bowling team and a motorcycle club or a university. I mean, you can go on and on and on. And those are important as well. But the bedrock are the three necessary societies. That's Catholic social doctrine in a nutshell. And you mentioned the polity is one of the three necessary societies. Does Catholic social teaching or does it bear the label social teaching as opposed to political thought or political teaching to highlight that the polity is not the only society? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, that change was not made formally uh, until really the early 20th century. And actually, it's Pius XI who seals the deal on the change because it was always before called civil or political. And uh, he wanted, well, Pius XI wanted to point out that there are three necessary societies, not one. And he wanted to point out the problems of the late 19th century going into the 20th century are all kinds of social problems, right? So they're not just political problems. Now, one of the issues I think you've underlined in your writings is that there is this growing body of papal pronouncements on social issues and the court doctrine remains unvaried, but the explanations, the emphasis are not always coherent. Does the general Catholic face any difficulties on trying to get a handle on Catholic social teaching? Yes, well, that's the that's the big question is how to begin. Uh, I think we can trace a very coherent epoch. In fact, it's sometimes called the great coherency, even in Roman documents, that goes from Leo XIII to Pius XII. And by the way, they all knew each other. Pius XII was was ordained in Rome uh, when Leo had published Anum Sacrum uh, for the uh, the new century. John the 23rd was a seminarian in Rome. He wrote a fan letter to Leo saying, Rome Navarum is really good, kind of thing. And Paul VI was born, was already born. So we have all of these popes who are united in one way or another around Leo the 13th. And Leo the 13th, you know, uh, published Eterni Patris, the renewal of uh, philosophy, particularly that of Thomas Aquinas. So what gave it that coherency was the fact that we had three generations who knew each other, which is very unusual. Uh, number two, they were all trained more or less in the, a similar scholastic philosophy and theology. So they had control over their terminology. It's as simple as that. I mean, they uh, they weren't hidebound to it by any means. But if, if you read what Leo says about a necessary society, 
and you read Pius twelfth, you will know that you haven't changed any framework at all. It changes toward the 60s. Well, everything changed in the 60s in a way. So one of the one of the things that happened is that Catholic thinkers began to seriously approach the social sciences. The social sciences were born at the time of Leo. All the, all the great ones, Durkheim, on and on and on. But in my research, I have, I have found no reference to these guys. Every now and then a reference to Karl Marx, who was a social thinker. Uh, every now and then a reference to, uh, oh, some kind of a positivist in France or something. But there's, there's not a consistent or deep reckoning with the social sciences. That really doesn't begin to happen until about mid 20th century. And you know, uh, the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences didn't even exist until rather recently. So that changed vocabulary a bit. And the third thing that's important in this uh, they began to want to teach more about big international order. That's Pacham and Terrace, John the 23rd, and Paul VI, Popolorum Progressio. And as that picture became bigger and more complicated, uh, yeah, the terminology begins to change. So uh, in Pope Francis's recent document, Fratelli Tutti, I think there were something like 40 references, uses of the word family, and only five of them pertain to a real family. Because we talk now about family of nations, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the change. And I, I really urge students to begin at the beginning because you can build up a familiarity with, how to put it, the main chassis of Catholic social doctrine. Whereas if you begin post Pachamanteris, you might have some trouble. Although JP2 is pretty reliable in, in, in his big encyclicals. Changes a bit of terminology, but I can always identify, well, that's what Leo would have called X. If the perspective has become even broader, mm -hmm. the focus on international affairs, modern social science, to what extent is the Leonine synthesis applicable? Is it still applicable to yeah. that broader um, area of investigation or reflection? Well, my career in writing for the past 25 years says yes. Okay. Yes, indeed. And that in fact, I believe that uh, the Leonine synthesis on social order is indispensable. For instance, Leo brings back Thomas's famous um, position on social order, where Thomas insisted, social order is not a substance. Now, some Platonists think it is. Yep. Okay, that there's an actual soul of the body politic. 
But of course, Aristotle said, no, it, it, can't, it can't be a substance. If it were a substance, all of us who are members of that society would turn into one thing. But on the other extreme, it's not a mere aggregation of things like a pile of sand in your driveway. You can say that is a pile of sand, but it's they're only related accidentally. Okay. Society is in between, and Aristotle's term was unity of order. It's a unity. Language itself is unity of order. Language is not a substance, nor is it just uh, scattered bits that are only uh, of things that are only related accidentally. No, it has an interior form to it, and it has an end. The end of language is communication. But the form of language is deeply unified and complex. And that's why we say a conversation. You've got to do it together. I mean, there's no other way to have a conversation or any language without doing it. And so that's what a society is. And then the next question for Leo is how many different kinds are there? Every society will have an intrinsic common good. We call that the form, the form of order, how we do it together, like a crew team. And they also have an end, winning the race. This is true of matrimony, family, polity, and church. What makes polity tricky, and international relations even trickier, is that there's no fixed form to polity. It can be government by one, government by a few, government by many, or some combination of them. Whereas in the case of marriage, the matter is determined, one man and one woman, and the form right in the matrimonial vow to create a unity, a social unity, for certain ends, procreation, of fellowship, et cetera, et cetera. Same with the church, it's fairly fixed. So our constitution is given by Christ and known through the Holy Spirit. And uh, we do have a constant form, but not polity. That's, that's what makes polity tricky. And even trickier today, speaking of international relationships, because Virtually every state on this planet self-identifies as democratic. Even North Korea does. So if you have a flag and a currency and the title, the Democratic Republic of, you are a polity, even though it's questionable whether some of those really are polities and not just despotisms of some kind. So, well, that was an unnecessarily long answer to your question. But. No, but I think that's it's a good overview of uh, the general understanding of society that underlies Catholic social teaching. The other qu problem I would see is that um, many believe that Leo's social teaching is encapsulated in Rerum Novarum, which deals with the problems of the fallout of the Industrial Revolution. But obviously, he didn't think that was his sole contribution to social teaching. 
uh, he has a whole list of encyclicals before that. Yeah, he, he, he waited for 11 years to write Rerum Novarum. In fact, his probably his principal social encyclicals are before Rerum Novarum. I'll, I'll give you one example, which I think is supreme. Since the Council of Trent, so 16th century, there are only two doctrinal pontifical uh, writings on marriage. To this day, they still stand after Council of Trent. These two are the interpretive framework for what we believe about marriage. And Leo wrote his, it's called Arcanum Divinae, uh, right after he was elected. It was one of his first major encyclicals. And his student, uh, Cardinal Ratti, who becomes Pius XI, on the anniversary of that encyclical in 1930, he writes Casti Canubii, which is still the doctrinal heart and soul of the modern uh, Catholic doctrinal understanding of what marriage is. And I tell my students that really these two encyclicals should be read first because the social theory, let, yeah, let's call it the concepts of what a society is, are laid out in these two encyclicals better than anywhere else. And very clearly, uh, so I begin with those two. And if you can read those two, and by the way, they're pretty readable as encyclicals go, if you can read those two and get an understanding of how they're using various ideas, you'll know 80% of what you need to know. And you've written an essay on those two encyclicals in Christianity and Family Law, which is published by Cambridge University Press. Is that a good primer and guide to those yeah. two encyclicals? Yep. And why? Uh, normally, when we talk about pontifical documents of marriage, most people nowadays would think of familiaris consortio, guardium et spes, uh, amoris letitiae. So why are these two encyclicals, virtually no one reads by Leo and Pius, so much more important than the better known uh, conciliar and post-conciliar okay. documents? A, because they're explicitly doctrinal not just doctrinal in a broader sense of teaching something. Okay. Uh, I mean, the whole issue of contraception, for instance, that arose in, well, in the late 50s, it actually arose, but the late 60s with Humani Vitae. Uh, it, 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 the decisive uh, doctrinal teaching in there goes back to Kosti Kanubi. So they are relevant and they are strictly doctrinal and it's not so even john paul ii's wonderful theology of the body and understanding of marriage and so on and so forth is not a substitute for what i would call the official straight up doctrinal teaching that we found in leo and his student Pius the 11th i'm pretty confident in saying that 
you've not included the compendium of social doctrine of the church. Is this because, as you've explained in various interventions, it does not present the church's social teaching within a satisfactory theological and philosophical framework, but collates teaching somewhat in the manner of a patchwork, or as the Greeks would say, stromates? Yes. It, it, a brief history of that, just very brief. Uh, in Ecclesia in America, John Paul II summarized that synod in a document and pleaded in the document for a brief catechism on Catholic social teaching. Brief catechism. I think he was thinking of something like our old Baltimore catechism. You know, slim, the essentials. And that turned into the compendium, which is not brief at all. And the index is almost as long as as the document itself. Uh, and what the authors of the compendium thought they were doing to satisfy John Paul II was to just collect everything and show uh, all of the different areas of social life that have been touched upon by the church over a century and a half. But it was, it was very unbalanced. Well, I'll give you one reason or one piece of evidence for that. There's about as much said on the Kyoto Fresh Water Treaties as on the topic of justice itself. And well, like justice is still important. I'm not sure, sure the Kyoto Freshwater Treaties are. And the next book, this one you list, is a collection of writings by Emmanuel von Ketteler. Uh, he was the Bishop of Mainz. He lived from 1811 to 1877. His writings on the situation of workers in the wake of the Industrial Revolution were one of the sources and inspirations of modern Catholic social teaching. Why are they still worth reading today? Well, yes, the Leo actually credits von Kettler with being the, the guy who began what we call Catholic social teaching in any modern sense of the term. Uh, and I think uh, that credit is well justified. The reason that von Kettler really has to be read is that between, after the French Revolution, which lasts 10 years, French Revolution is really not over until Napoleon is defeated. Um, all kinds of Catholic thinkers, clerical and lay, began trying to put together a explanation and to some extent a criticism of the breakdown of social order post French Revolution. Uh, part of it was economic crises, one after another, problems of the threat of wars, problem of in Germany, 60 some percent of the entire population in one generation moves from farms to cities. Cities have become a real problem, et cetera, et cetera. And they were fishing around for a unified picture and teaching on that. And lo and behold, this uh, Bishop von Kettler 
in resisting the German effort to, well, close down the church even, and beginning with Catholic associations, journalistic associations, economic associations, teaching associations. This eventually becomes known as Kulturkampf. It didn't have that name at the beginning, but it, it was a Prussian effort to sideline the church. Okay. Von Kettler in 1848 preaches, gives a series of sermons. And those sermons, which you can read in English, uh, University Press of America has them, nicely translated and with good footnotes. When you read those sermons, you, you say, whoa, this is where it began. They're exceedingly clear and they're sort of topic by topic by topic. What is the state? What is subsidiarity? Uh, what is the freedom of the church? You know, marriage. Uh, listen, the marriage issue never goes away because by the middle of the 19th century, we have regimes all over the planet that are changing marriage law uh, to permit uh, not just divorce, but divorce without having to show uh, some flaw in the marriage. Right. It's, it's, it's an option among others. Uh, today we call it no-fault divorce. So, boy, they had all kinds of social problems. And von Kettler is one of the two 19th century Catholics who really, in addressing these things, set the table for Leo XIII. And I, I find them extremely enlightening to read all these years later. So von Kettler's sermons, he also has some other essays, well worth reading. And the other one is Luigi Tapparelli, who, uh, a Jesuit, who was uh, in Pius, uh, in um, Pius the Ninth circle. And things were even worse by then. We're talking about the uh, uh, 1860s. Uh, armies have laid to waste the papal states. The Pope is a prisoner in the Vatican. Uh, we have a new regime that's also closing down the Catholic presses, uh, confiscating properties like monasteries and everything else. And uh, in Cipita Cattolica, uh, a Jesuit-run newspaper starts to produce something like von Kettler. That is, every issue, there'll be a new problem that's examined by a team of scholars around Pius IX. And uh, Topparelli was part of that. Later, uh, he goes to Sicily and uh, becomes a teacher in Sicily and wrote his magnum opus. And uh, unfortunately, the whole thing is not in English. It, it, it's very long, but people credit Topparelli with the first really systematic account of what subsidiarity is. And there's enough of him translated into English. You can, you can dig right into it. 
those two are crucial, setting the table for Leo the Thirteenth. And honestly, I think people should go back to them every 25 or 30 years anyway, because they have very clear pictures, uh, clear thinking on social realities. The next book is a collection of scholarly essays by Gerald V. Bradley and E. Christian Bruegel. In your view, does this collection constitute the best comprehensive commentary on modern Catholic social teaching that is currently available? Well, uh, I'm very impressed with it. Now, when you have about 25 authors, you know, the quality is going to be somewhat mixed. By the way, uh, uh, Professor Baer, who is the best Topparelli scholar in the English-speaking world, is is to be read in, in that collection. Many of them are just very good for a one volume, but I can't say it's the very best. I would want to say the one I'm in is the very best, which is the one done by John Whitty, which is on Columbia University Press. It covers similar ground. Uh, In fact, you should have both of them, both of those volumes. Well, that brings us to that book, which is edited by uh, John Whitty and Frank S. Alexander, The Teachings of Modern Roman Catholicism and Law. Politics and Human Nature. It contains a section of selection of texts by Leo XIII, Jacques Maritain, John Courtney Murray, John XXIII, Gustavo Gutierrez, Dorothy Day, and John Paul II. You're the author of two of its introductory essays, the one on modern Catholicism, the other on Leo XIII. Is it to the essay on Leo XIII, or is it to these two introductory entry essays that you wish to draw the reader's attention? A sort of okay. summary of Catholic social teaching. Uh, I worked hard on those, and I I had great editors, too. But uh, yes, Uh, so one of the the things to be valued in the Columbia edition, by the way, the original was Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox. But the volume would have been so big they had to parse it out into the volumes. Yeah, yeah. So, but one of the values of this method is that everyone who wrote an essay also had to include some kind of a central text, right? So, uh, or or something to interpret. And it's very valuable because uh, you can go from the essay to some section from Leo the Thirteenth or Pius the Eleventh or Pius the Twelfth or Dorothy Day, et cetera, et cetera. It's very useful, still in print all these years later. Thank you for listening. To read or listen to the rest of this interview and gain full access to our archive, visit fivebooksforcatholics.com and become a premium subscriber. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and give it a top rating on the platform of your choice. That way more people can discover it. You can also support the podcast and help us produce more interviews like this one by making a one-off donation via the link given in the show notes. As little as one dollar, one pound or one Europe can help and will be greatly appreciated. Thank you once again, and God bless.